Well, welcome to Kingsway, everybody, on this beautiful Maybember day. It's, uh, I don't know, I wore a sweater to church. I'm not sure I need it anymore, but my goodness, what is up with this crazy Indiana weather? Somebody told me this is normal, but I've been here six years. I don't know what normal is, so that's normal, right? It's Indiana. It's good to be here with you. We're starting a new series today, so if you're visiting, you're coming in right at the front end. And here's the short version of where the series was birthed in my heart. So for Christmas this past year, uh, I had this great idea how I was going to bless my wife. My wife is an encourager. She loves to write notes. So she, thank you notes, birthday cards, uh, just encouraging notes. She has a gift of encouragement, just loves to do it. She'll stay up till midnight, 1, 2 a.m. sometimes, writing notes out. And she'll like come to bed late. I'm like, what were you doing? She's like, writing cards. It's the only time she can find peace in the house, and the rest of us are quiet. And so here was my grandiose idea. I was going to build her, first I started with buy her, like a, almost like a card catalog, but like a nice one, a cool looking one. And when I saw one that I loved, fell in love with it, I couldn't afford it. And we have a budget for our uh, bank and for Christmas, and so it was, was going to break the bank. So I had this grandiose idea. I have a lot of scrap wood. And nothing says Merry Christmas like scrap wood. And I'm going to go back, and I'm going to design it. It took me weeks designing it. I finally decided on the design, and I'm sending it to pictures to, like, friends. Like, give me, give me your thoughts. We think this, this, this. And I finally designed the whole thing, and I started building it. And here's what I quickly found. If you don't have the right tools, projects like this don't always turn out right. So literally, Rachel would go to bed, and it'd be, like, 8, 9 o'clock at night. No, sorry, the boys would go to bed, 8, 9 o'clock at night. And uh, I'd be up till, like, midnight, sometimes 1 a.m., trying to finish this project, three to five nights a week, leading up to Christmas, working like crazy, trying to get the thing done, and so that on Christmas Day, I could actually have a present for her. So we get to Christmas Day. It's like the, the days before, and I've already started to prep her. Like, I'm doing my best, baby, but I might might not fully get it done, but it'll be close. You'll be able to see the concept and, you know, I'll finish it up afterwards. And so I run into a snafu right before Christmas. I put the drawers to this thing that I built in and um, they won't come out, <clears throat> which is not going to work. And uh, I finally figured out that because I didn't have the right tools, so because I used a circular saw instead of a table saw, if you don't know the difference, circular saw is kind of like a, a powered hand saw. And because my, either my lines weren't right when I drew them out or because I didn't have a guard, I had to do it by hand. And at the end there, I tapered off. And, and for a whole bunch of other reasons, I'm a preacher and not a carpenter, the drawers wouldn't fit. Now, when the weather got warmer, it was amazing. All of a sudden, the drawers started fitting. It was weird. You know, like, I don't know somehow they had to do with it, the sweat and whatever, the wood. But so here was what I learned. As I'm building this thing, I had this idea. If you have the right tools things can turn out well. But if you don't have the right tools, things go so much harder. Sometimes you can still get the job done. You know, you can put in a, a Phillips head with a flat head. And some of you are like, a what with a what? You know the plus sign screwdriver? You can still twist it with the regular flat edge screwdriver, but sometimes you'll strip out the screw. Now you can get it in there, but you can get the job done. You can also hammer in a screw. It's not gonna go real well, but you can do it. And this is how there are so many topics in life just like this. Do you remember the day you got married and realized you had no idea what you were doing? Do you remember the day that you realized you were having kids and there was no manual going to come attached to them? You know, it's amazing, but there's a lot of topics. There's a lot of topics. This is not a marriage series, but there are a lot of things that here's what God did in my life. He brought smart men and smart women in my life, and they taught me something that I didn't previously know. And when they taught it to me, it became this driving force in my life. And here's the thing that's happened in today's text, or in today's piece of wisdom. Somebody prepped me beforehand, and I didn't listen. And so when it came time, and life was hard and stressful and painful, because that's usually when we need wisdom the most, when we're hungry for it, not when we know what to do. 
And all of a sudden, the principle that these people had told me started to apply. I went, oh, I should have known that one. But if somebody hadn't already prepped me, I wouldn't have known how to fix the problem. So today, some of you, this is going to be a two-by-four to your head because you are in it. And some of you, it's going to be something you need to tuck away in your back pocket and go, one day, God's going to bring this out. And he'll say, remember when Pastor Matt told you? And he'll be like, oh, that's why he said that. So today's piece of wisdom comes from this. Both uh, mentors in my life, most recent ones, Dr. John Caldwell and Dr. Alan Algram, uh, both of them were senior pastors of large churches. Right before I left my last church, that's where Dr. Alan Algram was, and when I came here and worked nine months with Dr. John Caldwell, I asked them both the same question, and I got almost the exact same answer. It was really close, just their own words. Here was the question I asked them. Young pastor, young family, what advice would you give me? Did you want to know what they said? Somebody last service yelled out, don't do it. I'm like, no, it's not what they said. It was close. Here's what both of them said, and this is my words, not theirs, but almost verbatim. Don't do to your family what I did to mine. Now imagine that two people in your life who you really look up to, who have an unbelievable amount of experience and wisdom, both say the same thing in a six-month span of each other. Don't you think you would listen? Now I'm saying it to you. Do you think you're going to listen? Both of them went on to tell me extremely painful stories, stories that aren't my place to tell, stories about times when things had happened in their spouse's life and their kids' lives, and they were too busy out working hard. And you need to know this. As a pastor, we feel this extra burden. I'm not saying our job is any harder. It's not. Some of you have tremendously stressful jobs. I don't even want to trade you. No offense. But as a pastor, we feel this burden that we're failing God. We feel this burden, and Charles Spurgeon wrote a lot about this, the prince of preachers, that he would go to bed at night and feel this burden for the thousands of people he was leading as well as those who were unreached. And that's the burden that pastors feel. And because of that, we can go, 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 push, 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 trying to reach more, do more, and please more. And I'll just tell you right up front, that's my problem. I'm a born-again people pleaser. And that old people pleaser in me keeps raising to the surface. And because of that, I keep giving too much. I keep going too hard. I don't do well at creating boundaries and sticking to them. I create them all the time. My wife will be quick to tell you that I'm not always great on follow-through. So I am now feeling like a hypocrite. I'm just being honest. I'm not standing on a mountain saying, if you could climb up to where I am, life will go great for you. I'm climbing up the mountain with you and saying, we've got to get there together. So what I want to do is lay out why this is so important for you, what's the real heart of the matter, and what's some advice on how you could do this better. First thing, let me say this. So write this down. Take a screenshot. Whatever you got to do right now. There's a book. It's called When Work and Family Collide. It's by Andy Stanley. Here's what it looks like. You can buy it on Amazon or anywhere where books are sold. You can find this book. They have it in MP3 format. They have it in digital format. They have it in paperback and hardback. You could get it. It's a little book. You can read it in a couple hours. I believe the audio version is just over two hours unless you speed it up like me because... I'm so busy, I can't even listen to books at regular speed. You know, by the way, it's sick when you're listening to books on margin and you're listening to them at double time. But anyway, this little book is your blueprint. Your blueprint, if you're convicted by today, you need to buy the book. This isn't just for your spouse if they're struggling with it. This is for you if you're the one whose spouse, your husband or your wife, is far too busy. Your best friends, your parents, whatever it is. Because whenever our friends and our loved ones get overwhelmed because they're overcommitted somewhere, especially if it's at work, somebody is picking up the pieces for where they have left off. 
And there are far too many kids today being raised by somebody who's not their dad or their mom because somebody else has got to fill the gap because they're out too busy pouring their lives into something else. And it was roughly a year ago, um, I was going through a hard season here at the church, and I was working way too much. Not just days in a row, not just weeks in a row, but months in a row. And my wife, by God's grace, is a good woman, and she'd given me her permission to do this. Not realizing the effects it was having on her and on my family, I was taking full advantage of that permission. I was doing the best that I could to be present at home. However, I wasn't being present at home, and I'll never forget one particular night, I was feeling very, very heavy in my heart, and my wife had to put the baby at that point of bed. She was still feeding the baby, so I didn't, couldn't do much there. So I took the two older boys, and I went to put them to bed. And when I put them to bed, I told them, look, guys, we just got to get in bed. We're just going to pray. We're going to sing. I got to go. I got to get stuff done. Like, what do you have to do, Dad? I got to work. Like, you've been working a lot, Dad. I know. Like, I got, like, we're talking. Can we pray? Well, what are you going to do? Well, first thing I'm going to do, and I don't know that I had planned on this ahead of time, but first thing I'm going to do, I need to just go down and talk to Jesus. What are you going to talk to him about? Well, stuff. Well, what are you going to say? I, look, I'm just going to go down. I don't know exactly yet. I'm just going to go down. I'm going to talk to Jesus. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Jesus talks to you? Okay, now we're getting into a big theological question with a four-and-a-half, five-year-old, and a, you know. Okay, look, yes, Jesus talks to me. How does he talk to you? Well, he talks to me through his word. What do you mean his word? The Bible. Well, I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going to read my Bible. Oh, I love reading my Bible. Okay. Can we go to bed now? <laughs> like, this is a fantastic opportunity, but I need to be down with Jesus and working right now. So I finally got out of it, tucked him in, kissed him all, told him I love him, and I went downstairs. I was in a men's group at the time. We'd just recently started, and I challenged the men. We were all going to come back and share with each other. We were going to write out a plan for the year to spending time with God. What was it going to look like? And I had been working on mine, and I'd committed. I was going to read the Proverbs every day. And so I opened up my chronological Bible that I decided I was going to read it in, and I got to Proverbs chapter 1, and because I'm a little ADD, I noticed right at the end of, because it's chronological Bible, right at the end of Proverbs 1, they put Psalm 127, and I don't know why, except for that God caught my attention, and I read that instead of Proverbs 1, and here's what Psalm 127 says. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. For God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. And I read that, and it was like the Lord smacked me in the head and said, you realize those boys, you just rushed out of their room. You realize those boys are a gift from me. And you're too busy trying to do everything that is my responsibility. And I repented to the Lord. And I wish I could tell you I fixed it. It's never been a problem since. But it has been. And the reason that it's a problem for me is the same reason it's a problem for many of you. And the problem isn't necessarily what we think that it is. There's actually, I believe, a surface problem. And I think Andy says it well in the book. He says this. The problem is this. There's not enough time to get everything done that you're convinced or others have convinced you needs to get done. Can I get an amen? 
Now, Andy starts here, but he doesn't finish there. You've got to read the book. But I'll just say this. Andy goes where I believe the real problem is. I think that's the surface problem. There isn't enough time, but the reason there isn't enough time is because our hearts are unbelievably evil and deceptive. And you may be saying, well, you don't know me. I'm a good person. I know you are. I'm, I'm sure that you are. Trust me. Just like I am, and my heart is evil and deceptive. I can trick everybody. And the first person I trick when I trick everybody is who? Me. And I can feel important, and I can feel wanted, and I can feel needed, and I can hunger for that, just like everybody else. And when I crave after approval, and when I crave after everybody saying, Pastor, man, that was great. That was awesome. You know, Pastor, I need you. My marriage is falling apart. Pastor, oh, fill in the blank. Man, I'm ready to drop everything and save everybody else. And let my family die sometimes. Because deep down, deep down below the surface of the fact that there's not enough time, there is a heart that is longing for acceptance and approval. And before you think that I'm crazy, and before I go into how do we fix the problem, just wrestle with me for a second. Isn't it true? Let's say you're the spouse in the room. Let's say this is a marriage problem. It's not always, but let's say it's the spouse in the room. And let's say it's your spouse who's too busy. And consequently, you've been carrying all of the weight of their responsibilities. You're carrying the weight for them around the house. You're picking up their extra chores, their extra responsibilities. You're filling in the gaps either as mom or as dad or whatever it is because they're not around. You're doing the extra cooking. You're doing the extra cleaning. You're going to all the events. You're carpooling everybody around. Whatever it is, you're doing it all. Are you not doing it because you want to be seen as being a great spouse? Are you not doing it because you want them to be able to say, I have the best spouse ever, and be able to say, wow, they love me. Look how they love me. Deep down, aren't you seeking their approval? Or maybe it's your kids themselves. Look, ladies, you're not off the hook just because it's going to hit a lot of the men in the room. How many of you have your kids burned out, stressed out, yourselves burned out and stressed out because they're in a new event, they're in a new sport, they're in a new club, they're in a whole new whatever because I got to keep up with someone else. I need to be good enough. I need them to be good enough. And this is probably a good message to keep your elbows to yourselves. Maybe just a loving encouragement once in a while to the person you're sitting next to. Because it's going to be a hard one for all of us. Now, if your whole goal is to be accepted, to be good enough, to measure up, think about how much that happens at work. The difference between work and home is huge. It's significant. And you know this, right? It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman working. You go to work and people pat you on the back, tell you how great you are. You get a regular affirmation, most of you, for what you're doing in some form or fashion. It could come in the form of a raise. It could come in the form of extra vacation days. It could come in the form of a pat on the back, a letter from the boss, an encouragement note, whatever it is. Somebody pats you on the back and says, man, that was great, great job. And it's like pouring fuel on a fire. Here's the problem. You go home and people aren't as impressed with you as they are at work. That's crazy. You don't walk in the door and everybody goes... Welcome home. You don't throw out a piece of wisdom over dinner and your kids go, Dad. Oh. Wow. You are amazing. It's crazy. I sit across from people sometimes in my office, not always, and they'll just tell me how wise and amazing I am. And I go home and they say, Daddy, 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 would you wrestle with me? I'm like, I've been wrestling with you for an hour. My back hurts. My neck hurts. Daddy, 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 you and me never see you anymore. Like, never see me. We've been together for three hours at the park. You know what I'm talking about, right? So it's easy to go where the ego is stroked, isn't it? But slowly what happens is we kill the ones we love. We don't mean to. Right now, the number one cause of divorce in America, you know what it is? 
Some of you said it, money, money. Now, why are we all stressed out over money? You would think if we had enough food to eat, enough clothes to wear, a roof over our heads, we'd have enough, but it's never enough, is it? We got credit card debt, we need new cars, we need better cars, better clothes, new clothes, better vacations, and why do we need that? Because the number two reason for divorce in America, you know what it is? Social media, especially Facebook, the primary cause. And the reason is because, and again, it's more, far more adult women on Facebook than men, so husbands is your chance. The reason is we go on Facebook and we see everybody else's life and we think that we need their life. We go on Facebook, we go, gosh, they went to vacation in Cozumel. We don't know that they racked up $5,000 worth of debt to get there. And we go on Facebook and we say, man, how do they always get their kids to smile in that picture? They didn't tell you it took 14 hours, lots of bribing, a few spankings, whatever. You look on Facebook, and what do people post on Facebook? They always post the really, 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 really good, or if they're maybe a depressed kind of person, they post the really, 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 really bad. And so consequently, what do we see on Facebook besides political stuff? Always what we wish we had that we don't have. And what does it create in us? A sense of not good enough. And so we strive and we long and we want for things we don't have. And the more we strive and the more we long and the more we want, the harder we work, the more we chase. It's like a rat inside a maze. And we never seem to find it. When we find it, we just start over again. Have you noticed that? And that's why I believe that there are uh, three fantastic principles that if you will put these principles to work for you, they could change everything. Now, again, I think Andy's book gives you the blueprint for how to have this conversation with your boss, with your spouse, whatever, whatever. I just want to give you three principles to work on in your heart because as you dig these deep down into who you are, they will change the way you live. Principle number one, principle number one, God is sovereign, trust and honor him. Now, let's dig into this for a minute. I don't have time to go real deep on this. I will tell you, I have read almost everything there is to read on this subject, and I will tell you that um, I cannot fully explain it. It is a mystery of God. God is fully sovereign. There's nothing that's going to happen on this planet without him allowing it to happen or causing it to happen, and we don't always know which one it is. But God is sovereign. Things are heading a certain direction. He's making sure that things happen the way he knew they were going to happen. The fact that he knew it was going to happen doesn't mean you didn't have free will. You will be held fully accountable for your actions, what you do and what you don't do. This is why when Paul says over and over and over again, do not think God to be a fool. You will reap what you so, so if you're sowing good things, guess what? You'll reap good things. If you're sowing evil, you'll reap evil. Whatever you put in, you'll get back out. So clearly there's a correlation between your activity, your choices, your life. Now, God is sovereign. He's going to make sure certain things happen. However, you must work hard. You must be faithful. You must be righteous. And somehow those two things come together in a beautiful way. Dr. James McDonald up at Harvest Church in Chicagoland, I love the way he says this one time. He used this analogy. It's not perfect, it breaks down, but it's a good analogy to help paint the picture. Imagine you're on a cruise ship, and the cruise ship is going from New York to London. Now, you're on that ship, and there's a whole bunch of decisions you made that day, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to go, who you're going to hang out with, what you're going to do in between, but the ship is going from New York to London, and there's nothing you're going to do to change that. And that's kind of how you need to think about the sovereignty of God. He has all the wisdom, all the power, all the might, all the knowledge, all the resources to do everything he plans on doing, and he plans on doing a whole bunch of things. And there's nothing that you can do to prevent him from doing everything he has planned to do. 
However, your choices do influence that. Prayer would be meaningless if it had no impact on God. This is why James says you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you don't have the right motives. You just want to spend what you get on yourself so God won't give it to you. What's James trying to tell us? Open your mouths and pray and seek the Lord and he'll move on your behalf. There's this correlation between God's sovereignty but our activity and it is an amazing mystery and one that I will enjoy not fully understanding until the day I die. So what does that mean? I need to trust him and honor him. That's why Jesus says, put first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll take care of the rest. He'll make sure you have food in your belly. He'll make sure you have shelter over your head. He'll make sure you have clothes on your back. Trust him and honor him. Do the right thing in the right ways at the right time. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't steal. Just trust him. Do the right things. Even if your company tells you otherwise, even if you could get ahead, don't do it, and he will take care of it. Let me show you a passage real quick. So Solomon's daddy is a guy named David, King David, greatest king in the Old Testament apart from God himself. And David, not a perfect person, tons of mistakes, but he's a man after God's own heart because he loves God and he repents and he turns back to God. So maybe if you're in a bad place, you need to know that. Turn back to God. And David, right before he dies, he anoints Solomon as king. He believes God has chosen Solomon. I love this because in 1 Chronicles 29, he says, you know, guys, he says this to the entire nation, Solomon is young and inexperienced. Isn't that what you want your dad to tell the entire nation? He's young and inexperienced, but then he gathers together an offering from all the people. And as everybody brings in the gold and the silver and the wood and all these things they're going to offer to the Lord, Solomon is going to be responsible for building a temple, a house of worship for the Lord. And David's gathered together everybody in this huge offering, huge offering, and he says this, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. Then David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, and he said, O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, May you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is whose? Well, that was pretty weak. Yours. (laughs) I say that to my boys when they're fighting over a toy. Boys, whose toy is this? It's mine. I got it for my birthday. Uh -uh. Whose house is it in? Yours. It's my toy. You let your brother use it. Everything in the heavens and on the earth is yours. This is huge, guys. We can't get anywhere else. We can't even make it to the next stage if we don't grasp this concept. Man, everything you have is from God. He gave you your job. He gave you your house. He gave you your cars. Now, you think about this. I get it. There's some jealousy that could come from this from somebody who says, well, God, why did you give them more than me? And I will just say, do you know God never really answers that question? Maybe if you're somebody who doesn't have as much as somebody else, you should see it as a blessing and not a curse. There's actually a passage, I think it's Solomon, but I don't remember. It's in the Old Testament, and it says, Oh, Lord, don't give us too much, or we'll be tempted not to need you anymore. But God, don't give us too little, because then we'll be tempted to steal. The point of that passage, that piece of wisdom, is simply, God, would you give us what we need, not necessarily what we want, and we will be content. And contentment is huge, because contentment is like a big, big, big problem for all of us. 
We want more. We want better. We want glory. We want honor. We want people to tell us how great we are and how smart we are and successful we are. We want people to come to us and say, hey, teach me about this. You're so much better than me. We want people to look up at us and whisper about us around the, the water cooler because we are so great. But it's all God's. Now look at this. Oh, Lord. And this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Look at verse 12. Wealth and honor come from you alone. That's mind-boggling right there. No, no, Pastor, you don't understand. I worked my tail end off to get here. I worked 80-hour weeks. I mortgaged my house. I did this. I'm not saying you didn't work hard, and I'm not saying that working hard doesn't produce fruit, but you're telling me that there isn't anybody else who hasn't worked their tail end off and didn't get where you got? The sooner we realize that everything, wealth and honor, come from God, the sooner we can get to the place about putting our priorities right. As long as you believe the lie that if you can overwork, overgive, overcommit that your kids or your job or your boss or your money or your bank account will be directly proportionate until we can fix that there's nothing else we can fix you must realize it is all a blessing from the lord for you to manage for you to steward but to do it in a way that honors him and david goes on he says for you rule over everything Power and might are in your hand. And at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. You are the one determining whether we climb the ladder. You're the one determining whether things succeed. Here's where most of us fail. You know what we do? We go to God and we say, God, because power and might are at your discretion, God, because you are sovereign over everything, I'm going to let you, God, take care of my family. Because I know you love them more than me, and thank you, God, for loving them more than me. So I'm going to go do my job because they need me. And what you fail to realize is your job could fire you tomorrow and find somebody else to do what you do. But your kids can never fire their mama. Your kids can never fire their daddy. Your wife could run to the arms of another lover, but she committed to you for better or for worse till death do us part. The same thing, the husbands to their wives. See, the reality is, if you die tomorrow, <laughs> your company will replace you, but it will leave behind a significant hole for your family. And the reality is, it's a control issue. It's a pride issue. And if we're just going to be really honest and get down to it, that's the real problem. We think we have sovereignty. We think we have control. We think we have it all in our hand. And God says, no, it's mine to give. Should it surprise us then when Paul shows up in the New Testament, he says, husbands, love your wives the same way Jesus Christ loves the church. He gave up his own life for her. See, part of the problem in all this, guys, let's just be really, really, really honest for a minute. It's not that work requires more than we can handle. It's that we are unbelievably selfish. Most often, most often, when I'm talking to a family and one or the other, the husband or the wife is saying they work too much, they overcommit, they whatever, 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 most often there's a, another thing involved. 
There's a shopping addiction, there's a spending addiction, there's a hobby addiction. Somehow it almost always involves golf or racing, I don't know, I don't get it, but there's always a something else playing a role there. There's an alcohol addiction, there's a drug addiction, there's a porn addiction, there's a something else in there that's driving the heart. And so you have to stay one step ahead of all these things, and you just assume, you just assume, my family will always be there. And what happens that day when you come home and they're not? And all of a sudden, you're willing to promise and commit, I'll change everything. But usually by then, it's too late. I love this analogy. Andy uses it in the book, uh, When Work and Family Collide. He says, imagine that a friend comes up to you one day and he hands you just a big rock. And maybe the rock weighs 30 pounds, 50 pounds. And they hand it to you and say, I gotta go. I'm in a hurry. Can you just hold this rock for me? I'll be back in an hour. Now, you think to yourself, what? what am I doing? Why am I doing this? But you love the person, you trust the person, so you take the rock and you hold it. And they get in the car and you watch them leave. You say, okay. And all of a sudden, the neighbors are walking by and they're running by and they're doing the stroller thing or whatever and they look out and, you, and they see you holding this big rock. You're like, hi, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Holding this for my friend. And sure enough, an hour comes and they show up and they're like right on time. You know, not early, not late, but right on time. And they leave the car running and they throw the car in the park and they get out of the car and they run up and they say, oh man, thank you so much. I'm so glad. Thank you, thank you, thank you for not dropping this. I got, I, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Can you do one more hour? Just one more hour. I promise, just one more hour. Yeah, yeah I, I gotta go. I, gotta, I don't have time to talk. I gotta go. They get back in the car and they drive off. Now, about the second hour in, your arms start to get tired. You're 45 minutes into that now and you're like, wow, what is going on? 45 minutes turns into 55, 55 into an hour, an hour into an hour and five, whatever it is, an hour and 10. And you start to think to yourself, what in the world? I'm standing out here holding this rock by myself because I love them. They said they'd be here an hour. Now we're at two hours. We're over two hours. They're late. What is going on? Sure enough, as you say that, you start to make up in your mind, that's it. I'm done. I quit. You're just about to drop the rock. A car pulls up, flies up. They get out of the car. They run up to you, except for this time they're carrying flowers or maybe football tickets. I love you so much. Thank you so much. You don't even realize how big of a blessing this is. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. Look, I just need one more hour, just one more hour. And they brought flowers, so what are you going to say? So they run, they get back in the car, and they drive off. And this time, they're not five minutes later, ten minutes late. They're 30 minutes late. And finally, you say, you know what? My arms are tired. I can't take it anymore. I'm done. And you drop the rock, and it hits the driveway, and it just shatters. Good luck putting the pieces back together. And then they come home, or they come back, and the pieces are laying all over the place. I say, what did you do? Why are you quitting on us? Why? And there's really two people at fault. So you never told them along the way. You never said, I need you to stop. I can't keep this up. I'm tired. I'm weak. My arms hurt. I'm embarrassed. I don't know what I'm doing or why I'm doing this anymore. I love you. I want to work this out. And they just kept taking advantage of you. And the more you let them and the more they did it, it became this really unhealthy. And then what happens? Here's what happens. Someday you call your pastor and say, Pastor, can we come in? And you come in and you sit in chairs with a distance between you that feels like a mile. And you say, I just don't love them anymore. But it didn't have to be that way. So what else do we need to do? Well, here's the second principle. If you apply it, it'll change everything. Second principle. Be thankful and prayerful in all circumstances. 
Look, I'm not going to be a fool and just act like just praying and thanking is going to change everything. It's not. But if you will have an actual attitude of, and I hate, I hate platitudes, I do. But if you'll have an attitude of gratitude, it'll change things. If instead of being angry and bitter at God that you don't have what everybody else has, instead of flipping it around and saying, and, and saying God, thank you. Thank you for giving me this home. Thank you for giving me this house, giving me this car. God, I don't need to make $50,000 more a year. I don't need to make $5,000 more a year. I am happy and content with what you've given me. Thank you, God, for giving me what you gave me. Thank you for entrusting me with these things. If you'll actually go to your spouse and say, you know what? I know you carry a tremendous burden. I know in this season, I know, I know, I know this has been hard. You've been picking up my chores, my responsibilities. I just want to say thank you. You mean the world to me. But then you go a step further and you're saying, would you pray for me? Because I know things have to change. I know things have to change. I know I can't keep doing this the way I'm doing it. And maybe for you, if you're the spouse who you feel like you're being taken advantage of, maybe for you it's starting to pray, God, would you open their eyes? Would you help Pastor Matt's sermon to sink into their heart so that they would realize how hard this is? Pray, God, give me the strength and the wisdom and the words to say, because I don't want my spouse to think that I don't love them. I don't want my spouse to think I don't support them, but I can't keep doing this. Help. You know, James tells us, if you need wisdom, ask your heavenly father. He wants to give it to you. He wants to give it to you. And when you ask, don't doubt that he gave it to you. Just assume he gave it to you. Man, sometimes the best place to start is on your knees, going to God and saying, God, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for this spouse. Thank you that you've given us this family and these struggles and these issues. And God, would you help me? Give me the wisdom to know what to say because I feel like I'm losing my family and I don't want that. I love, love, love the way Paul writes this in Colossians. Take a look at it now in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 11. This is Paul saying, We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his, that's God's glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. Man, Paul is praying for the church at Colossae. They're facing pressures. They're facing, facing heresy and temptations and all kinds of stuff that Satan's throwing at them. And he said, we're praying that you'll just endure. We're praying you'll be patient. We're praying you'll have it in abundance so you'll have everything you need. So you will be filled, hear this, with joy. Now, joy in the Bible doesn't mean happiness, which is what we want it to mean. Joy in the Bible means, now you write this down. This would be another platitude, but it's a good one. Joy is a choice that we make despite the circumstances that we face. Joy is a choice you will make despite the circumstances you face. In the Bible, when Peter and James and Paul and all of them are preaching on joy, it's always to a group of people who are facing unbelievable pain. In fact, go study history on the catacombs of the early Christians who literally had underground tunnels to try to bury their own because they couldn't even bury their own who were believers. Many of them had to leave where they were living and go to a new city to find a home to live and survive. It was that bad. And they keep telling them, may you be filled with joy. May you have joy. Choose joy. How can I have joy when everything around me seems like it's falling apart and then Paul tells us look at the very next verse always thanking the father well how do I thank the father when look at this and these bills are coming in and my kids don't listen their kids listen and we don't get to do this anymore and I never see my always thank the father how because he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light And then he takes it a step further in these next two verses. Verse 13. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, 
verse 14, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now, what Paul's saying, in case you missed it, to the church of Colossae, yes, I know life is hard. I know you're struggling. I know you're facing a lot. May God give you patience and endurance and joy because no matter what, in heaven, you will be with him. He has erased your sins. You're right with God. And because you're right with God, everything else is going to work out. Because you're right with God, you can be thankful in your heart and say, God, I might not have what everybody else has. I might not get to do what everybody else gets to do, but you know what? I'm marked for eternity. And one day you're going to come back and you're going to bring me home. So God, my greatest joy in life doesn't come from what I will experience here. My greatest joy in life comes from what I know I'm going to get when I get there. So I keep my eyes fixed on the prize and I keep working towards heaven. Okay, God, whatever I have to endure here, it's life. It's life on earth. It's hard and toilsome at times. And I can't stand when people abuse 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God will never give you more than you could bear. That is not what that passage means. Go read it sometime. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will give you a way out so you can stand up under it. Some of you are experiencing a weight that is crushing and it's difficult and God is with you. So in that sense, yes, he'll never give you more than you can handle because he'll go through it with you. But don't think that that means for some minute that God hasn't put or allowed something very significant on your shoulders. But he will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. So choose joy. Thank you, God, for trusting me with this responsibility. Thank you, God, for this family. Thank you, God, for your blessings of a house and a car and clothes and food. Thank you, God, for every day that I'm six feet up instead of six feet under. Thank you, God, for this spouse, even when it's hard to say. Thank you. And the best things I ever did was started a gratitude journal towards my wife, just trying to write out every day things I'm thankful for. I've not done it every day. I fail some days. But even days when we're having a hard day, not that the pastor's wife ever do, but theoretically, if we ever did, finding something that day that I'm grateful for changes my attitude. Third principle, third principle, we'll be almost done here. Wherever you are, wherever you are, be there 100%. And I could just close. I don't need to say anymore, right? Part of the problem for you, and I realize I'm painting in broad strokes, but part of the problem is, part of the problem is, when you're at work, you're playing. And when you're at home, you're working. And when you're on vacation, you're working. And when you're sleeping, you're working. Or you're playing. And so you're not taking advantage of the natural breakups of life. When you're at work, be at work. Be all in at work. And if you're trusting God... If you're trusting God, then let him work through you, give you the wisdom that you need to do more in less time, to find ways to be more effective while not giving more and sacrificing more. Trust him, seek him, and ask him to help you. When you're at home, turn off Facebook, turn off your computer, turn off the TV, turn off your phone. I had to send an email to the elders and the executive team a couple weeks ago. I was convicted by our last series. I, I can't stand that. I really don't want to be a hypocrite. It just happens sometimes. I'm like, eyes, I'm being convicted by my own preaching. Here's the deal. I'm going to go home and I'm going to put my phone up when I walk in the door because I struggle with it too. And I'm not going to pick it up until the kids are in bed. Or if I need it for something, I will ask my wife's blessing. Do you care if I look this up on my phone real quick? I said, if you absolutely need me, call multiple times, text, whatever you got to do, but I'll get to you later at night. So yesterday I was like, hey, honey, have you noticed that I've been uh, trying to do better with my phone? She goes, oh, well, thank you for trying. I would just say I'm not necessarily successful yet, but I'm doing better. You know, when you have to point it out, it, it means you're not doing good. 
Here's the point. Wherever you are, be there. You don't need the life everybody else has. You just need the life that God gave you. I will not be held accountable for making Kingsway Christian Church, North Point Community Church, or Willow Creek, or Traders Point, or any other big church that's doing fantastic. I will stand before Jesus one day, and he'll say, Matt, how did you do with the responsibilities I gave you? Did you do what I asked you to do? And here's the thing. Remember Psalm 127? Just look at verse 2 and 3. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. Why? Because God gives rest to his loved ones. Remember this whole context? Remember verse 1? Unless the Lord builds a house, what are we doing? Laboring in vain, we're wasting our time. Unless God is doing it, you're just spinning your wheels. But if God is doing it, then all the pressure's off. You can just rest. Remember this, in the creation, God made everything. Six days, seventh day, he just took the day off. Said, I'm done creating. In fact, Hebrews takes it even further. God's not creating anymore. Now he's leading the earth in his creation. So you can take a deep breath and go, God is really absolutely seated on the throne. He created this whole thing, and he's sovereignly making sure it goes exactly where it needs to go. Thank you, God. But there's only one daddy, and there's only one mommy for the kids you made. There's only one husband. There's only one wife. God has called you to an awesome responsibility. Step into it and be what he's called you to be. Verse 3, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. I realize some of you, like me, can't get pregnant. It took us a very long time. By God's grace, he finally opened my wife's womb, and I'll never understand it. This isn't a guilt trip on you. This is just to say, realize they are a gift. It doesn't always feel like it, but they are a gift. So here's some advice. Andy says this. I kind of put some of my own words to it, but I love this. Look, your family wants to feel like a priority. It is not enough for them to just be your priority. They must be convinced by your actions that they are a priority. If you go up to somebody and say, I love you, but you punch them in the face every time you say it, they're going to have a hard time believing you. And this is really no different, though that's an extreme example. I love you. I lo you are on a priority to me. Really? Show me. I will. I will. As soon as I get through this season. You know how long a season lasts? My wife told me this. Over the last year when I was working way too much, and I said, honey, this is just a season. It was just a season. She said, Matt, if you ever say that again, you are in trouble. It's been six months. Seasons don't last six months. Point well taken. So, I love this quote by Andy Stanley, and I'll close with these last two things. Andy says in the book, whereas work is task-focused, the family is relationship-focused. One is about doing while the other is about loving. You do your job, you love your family. It's when we reverse the order that the tension escalates and the tug of war begins. You cannot do your family and love your job. If you do that, it's over. I recommend that you guys sit down and have a hard conversation with the people you love, your friends, your roommates, your spouse, your kids. Humble yourself and quit being insecure and prideful and just say, how am I doing? What do you need from me? And then take note. And then if this is a struggle for you, if you know a hard conversation is coming, I highly recommend you buy the book from Andy. He gives you the blueprint for how to have the conversation with your boss, how to be prepared. But I want to close with this.
Jesus, in talking about another subject, is asked, how is this even going to be possible, God? And Jesus responds, Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them as disciples, and he said, humanly speaking, this is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. If your priorities are right, everything is possible for you. Communion servers, I'm going to ask you to go. Everybody else just settle for a minute while our communion servers go out and get communion for you. Here's what I know needs to happen. Some of you in this room, this is a small adjustment. One degree, five degree adjustment right now so that you don't end up where far too many people have. For some of you, this is not a one or five degree adjustment. This is weeks and months and years of pain. And it's time to sit down and have a hard conversation, but you need God to go before you. What I want you to do is to take this time to get right with him first. As you take that bread, as you take that juice, this is a constant reminder that God loves you and God is for you. He's not against you. So as you take these, I just want you to say, God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your promise to give wisdom. Would you give it to me now so that later today as you're having this hard conversation, God can speak into you and bring the healing that you want him to bring. Let me pray over you. Father God, Lord, I realize almost everybody in this room at some point or another, this message will be real for us if it isn't already. God, I pray for the couple who's in here, Lord, or the person whose life could be a single mom or a single dad, and their life is truly just overwhelmed. And all the fears, the anxieties of not having enough or not measuring up or not being enough or not being present enough, all of those are screaming. And God, some of them are so real. Father, I just pray right now for your grace and your mercy. Forgive us for times, Father, when we have worshiped stuff instead of you. Forgive us, God, for times when we have put responsibilities that were never ours ahead of the things that were. Forgive us, God, when we were so busy doing everything else that we didn't have time for you to pray and to seek you and to listen to you. And God, I pray right now that you would help us to reprioritize our lives around you. Help us, God, to put you first. Help us, God, to put our families next. And then, God, help us to put our jobs and our health down there. God, I pray that as we live out this pattern, as you change us from the inside out, may it bring great reward, great fruit to our marriages, to our church, to this community. Help us to be a salt and a light. And God, I pray right now for every couple in this room is going to have a conversation that needs to be had later. Lord, may your wisdom and your grace lead them into a healing place. We ask all this in Jesus' name.